How many of you know what this is? Surely somebody does. It's a thermos, that's right. It's actually, um, it, was, it was my gift on the 12 days of Christmas. And uh, I, I had a repeat of my adolescent immaturity when I received it. Um, maybe some of you have been there. Uh, I wasn't that excited about it. Like, I would have rather, you know, when I was 12, a transformer or something. But anyway, I got it and I thought, you know, I wasn't upset about it. It just didn't thrill me, you know, warm the cockles of my heart kind of thing. And, uh, but since then, I've changed my tune. I've used it almost every day. I didn't, I, I really didn't know what an inferior thermos I was using. I've been drinking cold coffee around 10 o'clock every morning for the last three years. But now, it's piping hot. Even this morning, I get up very early on Sundays. This morning, I was sitting in my office several hours after I got up drinking hot coffee. It's a tremendous gift. And I just didn't know it. Now, our passage of scripture this morning is the baptism of Jesus. And most of us, like Aubrey with his thermos drastically underestimate what's going on in this passage. Think about this. It's recorded in all four Gospels. I've been preaching through Matthew's Gospel since the beginning of December. This is the first time Jesus has done something. And it's the first time he's spoken. And there are other markers. Just one, for example. In the baptism, we get an explicit reference to the Trinity. God the Father in the voice, the Spirit in the dove, the Son in the man. There are all these markers. The first thing Jesus does, the first time Jesus speaks, it's in all four Gospels, an explicit reference to the Trinity. These are serious kind of literary markers saying to you and saying to me, this is a big deal. There's a lot of weight here. This is significant. Now, what's so significant about it? One way to recognize the importance of what Jesus is doing in his baptism is to focus on the three things that happen. In fact, if you listened close, when I was reading the account, it doesn't even talk about his baptism. John consented. And then immediately when he's raised up, right, it skips over the whole baptism. Immediately when he's raised up, what happens? Three things happen. The heavens are opened. Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. These three things, the opening of heaven, the descent of the spirit and the voice of God. Now, these three things are what give us the significance of Jesus's baptism. And to understand the significance that's what's going on here, you've got to know the backstory. You've got to know that about 2,000 years before this moment, God had made massive promises to Abraham. And then to Isaac, his son. And then to Jacob, Isaac's son. And these enormous and far-reaching promises were basically that God was going to rescue the entire creation from its exile in sin. God was going to rescue the earth, the animals, the planets, human beings from the corruption that sin and death had brought. He was going to rescue us from injustice and from ugliness. 
And Abraham and his descendants, they are, they are God's answer to the plight of the human race and to the plight of the cosmos. Now, the descendants of Abraham, this is Israel. And Israel is to be God's true people. And their fortunes are the fortunes of the whole world. And what happens to the rest of the world is conditional upon what happens to Israel. Now, over the next five, six, seven hundred, eight hundred years after those promises are made, dating the Old Testament is very tricky. Okay, we're not sure. Somewhere between five and eight hundred years, somewhere between the fourth and the twelfth century BC. Israel, uh, Abraham's children's children's children, has grown to a lot. They're slaves in Egypt. And God rescues them from slavery to Egypt. And the climactic moment, if you've seen uh, Prince of Egypt by Disney or read the Bible, the climactic moment is when their back is up against the Red Sea. And, and Pharaoh is charging at them in his chariots, right? And they are facing a watery death or a death by very mad Egyptians, an army. And God miraculously parts the Red Sea and they are baptized. They pass through the waters and that's the climactic moment. And in Exodus chapter 4, it says in that moment, Israel becomes the son of God. In fact, Moses had said to Pharaoh, you must let my son go so that he may rescue me. He may worship me in the wilderness. Israel became the son of God. Now, baptism for Israel, becoming the son of God, didn't mean that they were, they had like taken some magic pill and everything was guaranteed to them. They still had to believe the promises. They still had to believe in the promises God had given to their forefathers. They still had to live out their role. They were responsible to be faithful to this unique relationship to God. And if they were faithful, they would be blessed. And if they were unfaithful, they would be cursed. And so after a honeymoon, Israel was unfaithful. Israel betrayed God. And as a result, they faced the terrible consequences of their sin. Disaster after disaster coming down on Israel as both a consequence and a call. Please come back. To your husband. Please come back to your father. Come back to God. And yet Israel refused to be faithful to God. And so finally because of their unrelenting rebellion. In the year 722 BC. Israel is conquered by the Mesopotamian super empire. Assyria. And then 130 years later, that was actually the northern half of Israel was conquered. 130 years later, Babylon conquers Assyria, becomes the new superpower in Mesopotamia, and then conquers the southern half of Israel. And this is it. This is the judgment of God pouring out on faithless Israel because they were not faithful to their baptismal promises, to their baptismal covenant, because they were not faithful to being the children of God. And in fact, by the time... Um, we get to Jesus, we discover that Israel has just passed from one nation to the other. Passed from Persia, then to Greek, 
then to the Greek Empire, and then to the Roman Empire. And all of this time, they are watching and they are waiting for the passage that was read to us from Isaiah to come true. All of this time, they are waiting on the promises that through them, God would not only rescue them, but he would rescue the whole world. What does it mean that God's going to use us to rescue the whole world when the whole world keeps beating us down and we're slaves of this country and then that country? And so by the time we get to the time of Jesus, they are longing and waiting for God to keep his word. To not only rescue them, but through them to rescue and restore the entire creation. We get to Jesus and it has been 400 years since a prophet has spoken. It's been 400 years since the voice of God has been heard in Israel. Isaiah 63 verse 15 is an example of the kind of prayers Israel was praying during this time. Lord, cried the prophet for his people, look up on us from heaven where you live in your holiness and glory. Where is your great concern for us? Where is your power? Where are your love and compassion? Do not ignore us. In verse 15, why don't you tear the skies apart and come down? Do you see it? Do you see why his baptism is so significant? Because the heavens have been closed. And finally, after centuries, they are opened. And the dove, the last time a dove was in scripture, Noah sent him out. Did he come back? No. But now the dove has returned. The judgment is over. The the dove has come back. And after 400 years of silence, once again, God's voice is heard in Israel. And what does God say? He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, unless you know the backstory, I promise you will turn that into some sentimentalized expression. But God is actually quoting himself. He's quoting something he said in Psalm chapter 2. The second Psalm, the seventh verse. Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. It's a psalm that, that coronates God's chosen servant through whom God would rescue Israel. And in verse 7 he says, this is my answer of Psalm 2. It will be... My son. The second line of what God says, he's quoting himself from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. The passage that was read to us, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And if you go on to read through Isaiah 42, it's God's promise of a servant leader for his people. And that through this servant, God would Put, put his spirit on the servant, and through this servant, he would rescue the world from their exile to sin and death. Now, think about this. You have the spirit. Think about Jesus' baptism. You have the spirit, you have water, and you have God's voice. When did we last see that combination? In Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and without void, and the dark and void was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's the image of a bird. And God said, Let there be light. You see, God is saying, Dear world, this is it. I'm keeping my promise. 
The new world is beginning. I'm recreating things. Just like I once created, now I am recreating. A new creation is dawning at the baptism of Jesus. A new beginning, a new epic in God's dealing with his creation. The weighty significance of Jesus' baptism is that history has turned a corner. We've entered a phase of history that we were not in before, that all of Israel had been longing for and begging for. Would you make it happen, God? Would you renew all things? The promises you made too. Thousand years ago to Abraham, would you please keep those promises? Because living on this side of you keeping those promises is brutal. We've entered a new stage in world history. The reason all of the Gospels have it. The reason so many artists throughout history have painted it is that the time of judgment on Israel has passed. And therefore Israel, in the person of Jesus, can finally bring the blessing of God to all of creation. The time of judgment is over. The great moment has arrived. And what Jesus began at his baptism, he completes at the cross. The baptism of water begins to open the pathway to God's presence. The baptism of blood finishes His job, remember, he prays about his crucifixion as his upcoming baptism. Now, so much more. All we've done is peeled back the package and just looked and taken a glimpse. There is enormous significance here. But there's a connection that you've got to make. Remember, Jesus' action of being baptized is his first action in Matthew's gospel. Do you know what his last action is? It's his first time to speak. Do you know what he says when he speaks last in Matthew's gospel? Go to the end of Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 28. Once again, baptism is the subject. It's the subject of Jesus' first action and his last action. It's the subject of his first speech and his last speech. Listen to the last action and the last speech of Jesus in John's gospel. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So baptism brackets Matthew's gospel. And did you notice once again, for only the second time in Matthew's gospel, is there an explicit reference to the Trinity? Do you see what Matthew's doing? He's doing everything he can as a literary artist to weight these events and to connect these events to one another. Now, what's important for us to see is that Jesus opened his ministry with baptism. And and Matthew insists on linking that baptism up to our baptism. So that Jesus' baptism is a model for our own understanding of our baptism. It's a paradigm. They're linked. In fact, throughout the remainder of the New Testament, Jesus' baptism forms the deep well from which the theologians of the New Testament draw up endless supplies of meaning for our own baptisms. And this brings us to 
an important point. Just like most of us drastically underestimate the baptism of Jesus, most of us drastically underestimate our own baptism. See, that's where Matthew leaves you. Making all of these connections between our baptism, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and Jesus' baptism, and putting so much weight there. Most of us drastically underestimate our own baptism. Let me read you just a few of the significant passages that will make every Protestant run in terror. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, I'm about to say some things that perhaps have never been uttered to some of your ears, except in the books you read about people you don't agree with. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, (laughs) were brought safely through water, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. How were Noah and his seven kinfolk saved? Passing through the water in the ark. How was Israel saved? Passing through the water. Baptism saves you, not as a removal of dirt from your body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers having been subjected to him. Let me just say, whenever the New Testament talks about baptism, it's talking about baptism. That thing we do back there. It's not, metaphor, it's not making a metaphor out of that for praying the Lord's Prayer. And that's the problem with a lot of Protestants. We've turned all the times the New Testament talks about baptism into an abstract metaphor, a sign. Baptism is baptism unless the New Testament says, I'm using it now as a metaphor. Okay? Now, first of all, Peter does not mean those who are baptized are guaranteed a place in the new heavens and the earth. He has in mind a normative situation. He's not dealing with exceptional cases. You know what an exceptional case is? It's the case of the hypocrite. Like Simon, the magician, coming to the apostles and saying, give me some of that power. If you come to the baptismal waters as a hypocrite, if you come to the baptismal waters dishonestly, treating them like some magic pill, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about sincere converts who believe the gospel and, the New Testament is clear, the children of those converts. Look at Romans chapter 6. Don't worry, I'm going to qualify some things, but let's just... It didn't qualify there, so let's just stay with it for a minute. Romans chapter 6. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to con- this is Romans 6 verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now look, that's called a rhetorical question, right? Um, how can we who died to sin still live in it? What's the implication of that? The implication is the people he's talking to, they've died to sin, right? Now how did they die to sin? What, what was their death to sin? He's assuming they've all died to sin. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He's talking about baptism. He's not talking about something baptism stands for. He's talking about baptism. We were buried, therefore, with him. How? 
by the thing that baptism stands for. That's not what it says. We were buried, therefore, with Christ by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Listen, if you have been baptized, you are forgiven of your sins and you are justified. Now, again, this doesn't mean if you've been baptized, you're guaranteed to pass inspection at the final judgment. However, we can tell our baptized children, you are right with God. Baptism is God's word to you that you are justified. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Again, I said I'm going to qualify. Just stay with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men with, who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You know what he means? You were baptized. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is talking about baptism. Not this thing that we say baptism points to. He's talking about baptism. Those who are baptized become saints. When Israel was baptized through the Red Sea, they become Israelites. They became the children of God. Those who are baptized become holy ones in God's holy house. And Paul says, and you're expected to live like it. So you know what we say to our children? You were baptized. You're holy. Now live like it. You were baptized. You're a saint. Now act like it. You're right with Jesus. You've been washed. You're accepted by him. Now live out, just like Paul said. Now, you're dead to sin. Why are you acting like you're not dead to sin? By baptism, what did Paul say in Romans? You are baptized into the death of Christ. That's how you share in his death. Think of baptism like a marriage ceremony. I mean, don't answer this out loud. But how many of you believe that when Russell and Kelly stood in front of me, and if they had had the wisdom to be born shorter than me, then the people could have seen it, but because they were towering over me. Anyway, so when they stood in front of me, um, how long ago? Five and a half months ago. And I said to them and to the congregation, I pronounce you husband and wife. Do you believe that actually was true? Do you believe that right affected that reality? Now, you know that it did legally, right? Do you know that our, our people, our government has authorized me, justice of the peace, a few people, right? Now, it would, what if Silas and one of our neighbors stood in the backyard and they said, um, I do, I do. And Shay said, I pronounce you husband and wife. Now, would that have made them legally, would Silas have been legally married? No, 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 no. So we're not talking about magic here. We're talking about when the rite, R-I-T-E, the ritual is done in a particular way, according to all of the rules, our government says, guess what, Russell? She gets half, Right? 
I mean, right? I mean, now Russell and Kelly can get a divorce, but they will no longer be what they were before. Now it's divorced Russell. That, that on, a, on a legal level, when I, when I do that right with people in a certain set of circumstances, reality is affected. And as Christians, we believe even more. Right? We believe that God, in the right of marriage, actually does something. So we beg our friends, don't get divorced. You are tearing yourselves apart. Don't we as Christians believe? Now, this is a difference between Christians and, and our society right now because our society thinks it's merely legal, right? But don't we as Christians insist there is more going on in marriage that in that moment when that right is done rightly, you are ontologically, we would say in philosophy, you are actually made one. Now, Protestants... If God can make a right out of marriage, why can't he make a right out of baptism? Why can't he make a right out of the Lord's Supper? We believe he, he operates in this way. We believe that God chooses rituals and he authorizes them. When they are done in certain ways, certain things really happen. That's all Paul is saying. Is that when you are baptized, something really happens. Baptism is a passageway. Through baptism, God transfers a person from one life condition to another. Now, many Protestants have stepped away from the New Testament and said, No, we do believe God does that. He just doesn't do it with baptism. He does it with a prayer. It's the same logic. If you say this in your heart and mean it, God will transfer you from the realm of Satan to the realm of God. Well, that's exactly right. It's just not in some prayer. It's in baptism. Now, baptism is a passageway. Through baptism, God transfers a person from one life condition to another, from one world to another, from Adam to Christ, from the company of idolaters to the company of God, from the table of demons to the table of the Lord. When Paul is talking to people, of Christians, about misbehaving, you know what he goes back to? Not the prayer they prayed in their heart. Their baptism. You were baptized. Now act like it. You're, you're sons and daughters of the king. Now Live like sons and daughters of the king. And isn't this the same logic God has always used? Isn't that what he said to Israel? I've baptized you. I've made you my children. I named you my son. At your own baptism through the Red Sea. Now act like it. Washing in the name of Jesus justifies. In the sense that in it God judges and overthrows our slave masters. Sin and death. And he rescues the baptized one from idols and unrighteousness. And he implants that person in the community of righteousness. In baptism, Jesus rescues the baptized. They are members of his body. Now, are there exceptions? Absolutely. We're dealing with the normative case here. Now, here's an important point. Those of us who are baptized, just like Israel, we must Continue trusting in the promises of God and obeying God. Those who believe the promise given in baptism, who live out their standing as righteous ones, have nothing to fear. Some won't. Many won't. Some cross the waters and return to Egypt. Egypt. 
It happened with Israel. And all of us know people who've been baptized who've gone back to Egypt. They've not continued living out their baptismal identity. You see, with us, it was like it was with, with Jesus. In our baptism, our identity is declared. God has given you baptism so that you can answer the question, who am I? This is always how Paul answers the question when he's dealing with people who are confused and they're acting like children of the devil. You know what he says to them? You were baptized. Parents, don't push your kids on did you pray a prayer in your heart? You were baptized. Now, here's how it works. What did God do to Jesus? What did the Father do at Jesus' baptism? He poured out the Spirit on him. By the way, that's why most of the Christian world does baptism by pouring. Because that's the image, the pouring out of the Spirit. It's the image that Paul most frequently uses when he's talking about baptism, pouring out. There, there, you know, some people immerse. Um, that, that's an image of we, we die to Christ and we're raised with Christ. Some people sprinkle. All these are symbols, but the symbol that is most frequently used in the Bible is the pouring out of the Spirit. Because the Spirit is poured down on Jesus here. And what else does God do? He says to Jesus, you are my beloved son in you. I am well pleased. My soul delights. And you know what happened to you at your baptism? God poured out his Spirit on you. That's what the rest of the New Testament says. He gave you his Spirit. And what else did he do? He declared, you're my child. From this moment on, you're my son. You're my daughter. And I, guess what? You haven't earned it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not about, what I'm about to say isn't because of how good you are. It's because I've just been so gracious. Guess what? I delight in you. I am well pleased in you. My pleasure in you was given to you at your baptism as a gift. If you trust in what God did for you at baptism, you never have to wonder, does God love me? Just look at your baptism. Look at yourself through the lens of the baptismal waters. When you ask yourself, who am I? Hear God's answer. You are my beloved child. God tells you who you are in your baptism. Accept your identity and live accordingly. Do you know what? Do you know that what Martin Luther said when he was living dark nights of the soul? Do you know that when Martin Luther was doubting... He struggled a lot with doubts. When he could barely hold on to his faith by his fingertips, you know what he said? Martin, you are baptized. Away with the doubts. That's the father of the Reformation. Now, look, I promise, I know there are some unanswered questions. Just trust me, I am not advocating work salvation. In fact, this is the opposite of it. It's grace. It's God giving you his grace through no part of your own. Martin, you are baptized. That was where he got his identity from. He clung to the promise made in the water. He found his true and deepest identity, not in his sins, not in his failings, but in the covenant of baptism. He was a sinner, yes, but he was baptized. He was a forgiven sinner, a washed sinner, a renewed sinner. And John Calvin said exactly the same thing. 
John Calvin included in his children's catechism these questions. Are you a child of God? Answer, yes. Question, how do you know? Answer, straight from the pen of Calvin. Because I am baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is right out of Calvin. Now to be sure, baptism brings with it obligations. It obligated Israel. And they learned. When they, look, once you are baptized, you can never be unbaptized. Do you know that I deal with my children different when they disobey than I do with the cook's children? Once you're baptized, you're a disobedient child. You can leave the faith, but you're a child who has left the faith. You can rebel against God, but you're a child that's rebelled against God. And ask Israel how that works. If that plays out well for them. Baptism brings with it certain obligations, just like it did for Israel. If you're baptized, God has been gracious to you. He he showered his gifts on you. He's brought you into the family, into the covenant community. He's washed you. He's poured out his spirit on you. He's spoken to you. And now you must live accordingly. This is why I say to my children, you're baptized. You're a saint. You're holy. Now live like it. You have to accept what God says to you. And a lot of times that will mean rejecting what others say to you. And even rejecting what you feel in your own heart. Let God's baptismal word be true. Even if it means the whole world is a liar. Baptism tells you who you are on good days and on bad days. On the days when you feel good spiritually and on the days when you are in the pit spiritually. Experience in Christian life, it ebbs and flows. But whenever you are going through the dark night of the soul, God throws you a rope. It is your baptism. Baptism is objective. You don't have to think back, did I feel something? It happened. It's real. Israel didn't have to say, were we rescued from, Israel, from Egypt? No, it re, the, the Red Sea, it did happen. It's solid. It doesn't fluctuate. Baptism calls us to simply believe that God is who he says he is, that we are who he says we are, and it calls us to, ex, to simply accept what he says, to accept that his promises are true. To live as a baptized person is to know that God's declaration over you is the most absolute and deepest truth in your life. So if you struggle and you doubt and faith feels to you like a sheer cliff that you cannot climb, baptism is your foothold. Your baptism is your foothold that enables you to keep climbing. Baptism is God's gift. It is God's work. It is God's promise. At Jesus' baptism, God invaded the exile of Israel. And not only Israel's exile, but yours. Your exile in sin. And death and guilt and failed relationships and frustration and doubt and all the brokenness of your life. And you know what? You know what Christ did? He entered our exile and he offers all of us a way home. Now, have you done it? Have you come home? If you haven't, 
Please do. Come home to the Father. You know what? Jesus didn't have to be baptized. He had no sin. That's why John said, wait a minute, you should be baptizing me. And what did Jesus say in response? No, this has, has to happen in order to fulfill the, all righteousness. In order for the whole Old Testament to make sense, I've got to be baptized. You know what that means? It means I've got to identify with you. I've got to become Israel. I've got to become a, a person that needs this. And ultimately, on the cross is where he continued that move, right? In his baptism, he begins his career identifying with us. And then ultimately, it's on the cross that he identifies with us. And just like in our baptism on the cross, he stands in our place. He accepts the wicked consequences. But then he rises from the dead. And Paul says, when you are baptized, you share in that death and you share in that resurrection. Have you come home to Christ? Have you been baptized? Have your children been baptized? It's such a gracious offer. Guess what? It doesn't depend on you. Pass through the waters. For those of you who have been baptized, act like it. Live out of it. Trust in the promises of God given to you at your baptism. Trust in the voice of God declaring at your baptism, you're my beloved. In you, I'm well pleased. Live according to the rules of God's kingdom. Be a light in this world. That's God's gift to us. Let's pray.